Oh, what a good day to be together. What a good day to be a new creation. I woke up this morning and I didn't have enough sleep. And then the gal at the hotel completely butchered my coffee. I have no idea what she did. It was really not good. And then my wife and I got in a bit of a tiff. It was probably all my fault. Uh, I'm the much harder to live with of the two of us. I'll, I'll definitely admit that. But you know what? Like, none of that matters, because I'm new. Like, none of that changes any of that. And if I'm new, and if God lives in me, then nothing else matters. Like, like, like just think about that. If, if God lives in you, what else matters? What else, what else are we so hung up on? Like he's, he's in there. And what I'm trying to do this week is to challenge you. You see, I, I, don't, I doubt there's a person in this room that would say, no, I don't think he's in there. The scripture's pretty clear about that. We'll all agree he's in there. The problem is most of us haven't found him yet. <laughs> and what I want to do is challenge us and say, guys, if that's biblical truth, then we need to press in. It's not, it's not meant to be a philosophy. It's not meant to be a set of abstract thinking. It's, it's an invitation to a life lived. It's supposed to play out in every part of our life. You know, it's, it's unbiblical for us to see any part of our lives without God in the equation. It's unbiblical. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So anything you think about, if God is not in the equation before you start thinking, you're thinking unbiblically. You're thinking unbiblically. And you know what? That's so freeing because he's so big. He's so amazing. He's so glorious. He's so beautiful that it's like, oh, problem, God, I'm good. Not a big deal. No, I, I, this, is, this is such a freeing thing. And this is the way that we're given permission to live in the scriptures. It, we could so easily read this, and, and this kind of stuff and be like, I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to square all that. So I'm kind of just not going to think about it. Please don't do that. Oh, please don't do that. Please don't do that. This thing isn't going to work if you approach it that way. We have permission <laughs> to live our lives in a radical way that makes no sense to the world because God is in us. I was having a conversation with God. Uh, this might've been, I guess, a couple of years back at this point. For me, walking in nature is incredibly rejuvenating. And it's just something my soul just kind of gets filled up. And um, so I, I get out in nature as much as I can. And, and where I live in the U.S., is basically like 500 miles of cornfields in every direction. We have no mountains, we have no water. It is incredibly flat and boring. Like, I'm, incre I, I'm really jealous. And, and I've, been, I've been taking Jesus at his word. Like, you can command a mountain to move. <laughs> but it just hasn't taken yet. So, so anyway, we'll keep working on that. But for the time being, you know, what we do have is forests. And so I'll often go out and I'll walk through the forest and sometimes it's kind of a, a discipline of prayer or I'm connecting with the Lord. Sometimes it's just being, you know, I'm just like, I'm in God's good creation. It fills me up. And so one day I'm out in the woods and I'm walking around and 
Um, you know, I'm just like, I'm you know, the bird, blue skies, the birds are going, you know, and it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling really full. And so I ask God this question spontaneously. Now, I want to I wanna say just a little, little comma in the story here. Ask God questions. In my opinion, like none of us probably ask enough questions of God. We have the spirit of truth who Jesus says will lead us into all truth. So there's nothing that's off the table if we'll ask, right? So ask questions. So anyway, so I'm out, I'm out in the woods and I'm feeling fold up and I'm like, Lord, why is it that like walking in the woods is so rejuvenating to me? I was just kind of curious. Like, that's kind of like, why is it this? You know, like I could take a nap. It doesn't do the same thing. You know, I could do a lot of things. Why is it that walking in the woods is so rejuvenating to me? Why do I enjoy this so much? And the Lord just quick as that answers me back right away. And in, in, in like, you know, once in a while you have one of those conversations that feels real clear, you know, and it was one of those. And, and God just says, quick as that, he says, what makes you think you're the one enjoying this? <laughs> and I said, huh? <laughs> what on earth do you mean, Lord? And God said, see, buddy, here's the deal. I'm the one that made all this. I'm the one that said that it was good. I'm right now looking at my creation through your eyes. I'm enjoying this. You get to come along for the ride. What if there really is more God in you than there is you in you? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What if that's the baseline for our reality? Like, what, what if that is every moment of every day? What if that's happening in this room right now? And it's just not something that we're as connected to as we could be. He's in there. Sometimes I have moments where, I'll just be honest. For me, this is one of the personal commitments in my life. If all of this is true, which the book says it is, so I'm going with yeah. So if all of this is true, then one of my personal commitments is this. I want to press into that truth as far as I can in my own personal life. I don't want that to live in that mental space. If that's true, then it's real. And if it's real, I can find a way to connect to it and live in it. And so I'm pushing into this in every possible way that I can. And sometimes this was so cool. I think it was last night right before I went to bed. I look in the mirror and every once in a while, I swear, I see Jesus looking back through my eyes. It literally frightened me last night. I was like, whoa, yeah. Ooh, tomorrow's going to be fun. <laughs> he's in there. What if he's thinking in your mind once in a while? What if he's feeling in your emotions? What if he's speaking through your words? What if he's loving through your actions? What if the story of your life is that you're actually an opportunity for God to manifest himself on the earth? And you get the wonderful joy of going along for the ride. It's a beautiful reality we live, guys. Beautiful reality. So yesterday we, we introduced all this. We unpacked all this. And it was glorious and it was wonderful and it was amazing. And I'm sure that it prompted a lot of questions. It should have. 
because you guys are sharp. You're thinking, you're leaders, that's good. And what I want to do is I want to talk through one of those questions that I am sure popped up yesterday for probably many people in the room. And that is this. Okay, putty, like if you're saying that I'm dead to sin, which, okay, we read the scriptures. I get it. It's in the scriptures. Check, right? But if that's the case, then why do I seem to still enjoy it so much? Like, it doesn't feel like I'm dead to this at all. And parenthetically, I'm not saying that you don't sin anymore. I'm saying sin's no longer natural for you anymore. It's no longer normal. It doesn't fit you right, so to speak, which is why you regret it every time afterwards. Before you didn't used to. Sometimes we've been saved long enough, we forget that, right? But I'm not saying that we never have sinful action. So, like, how do we reconcile these two? Like, how does that fit together? And that's a really important question because what I think is always a bad idea is there's, there's two ways you can go wrong on this. One would be to say, well, truth is truth. Forget about my experience. Forget about the world. Forget about life. This is what it is. And I'm going to kind of put blinders on. Well, I'm not sure that that's terribly helpful. At the very least, it's going to be awfully difficult to engage culture that way, right? Because we're going to be like, yeah, I know none of this seems remotely applicable to your life, but just believe it, okay? This is not very convincing. So we can go wrong that way, but we can go wrong you know, the other way too, and that is where we form our theology based on our experience, which we don't want to be doing that. That's why we have the scriptures. We have the word of God. That's what's supposed to form our theology. And so what we need to do is find a way to bring the two of them together. How do we draw our theology from the scriptures, but if it's accurate, it ought to explain our experience, right? It shouldn't be incompatible. They ought, they ought to be able to fit together. And so that's what we're going to go ahead and, and look at today. And namely, I want to look at the, the question, which this was the world I was raised in. So I 100% get it. The question of saying, well, hold on. I thought I was kind of like uh, a dual nature guy. I thought I was like, I still had a little bit of sin nature in me, but I was also redeemed and I thought that it was sort of like locked in this battle thing. You know, the angel, the devil, that whole thing on the shoulders. I thought that's who I was. And if you heard me yesterday, I said, yes, that's, that's actually not who you are. I understand that that's what many of us have been taught. I was taught that. But that's not indeed actually how the scriptures describe the situation. So I want to say, I want to ask this question, how is it not that? What actually is happening? Because we are drawn to sin. We do sin sometimes. How does all that fit? Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to think a bit about what it means to be a human being. Because the, the sort of angel devil, two natures picture, you're the best of you and the worst of you, which by the way, parenthetically, let me just step aside and say this. <clears throat> Jesus himself says a house divided won't stand. So if you're seeing yourself as a house divided, I don't know why you think your Christianity is going to work well. Take that one to the bank. Okay, back into the, back into the thing. Where does this idea of two natures come from? Well, what it comes from, where it actually comes from, is thinking about our anthropology, thinking about what it means to be a human being and, and how that whole thing plays out. So what I want to do is I want to I kind of like 
take you guys through a couple of pictures. Now, I was a physicist and, you know, once upon a time, and so I tend to think in charts and diagrams and stuff. And so if this isn't your thing, just bear with me for the next few minutes. This won't be the whole rest of the talk, but it's a lot easier to explain this with some pictures. And so, uh, tech guys, can we, like, throw the, the first of the slides uh, kind of up there? Um, now, this is, this is the question we're going we're gonna to ask. So uh, if I'm dead to sin, why do I still sin? How does that work? And we're going to look at two possible answers. So what we're going to do is we're going to start, and, and really what we're asking is this. We're saying, why are my actions sometimes sinful? Right? Why are my activities sometimes sin? If I'm dead to it, how does all of that work? Well, the way we wind up with the two natures picture is we say this. Well, okay, the first thing we know is this, is that our sinful actions come out of our sinful desires, right? We sin because we want to, right? In the moment, that thing looks good. It looks appealing. It looks desirable. It looks like it's going to give us something that we feel we're lacking. Whatever version of it is, we're doing a sinful action because we want to. And so we have to like say, okay, we have at times sinful desires. Even if we're dead to sin, however all that works, we have sinful desires. Yes, check. Is there anybody here who doesn't have that once in a while? If not, once again, lay hands on me. I would like that. I'm still in process. I expect you are as well, right? So we still have sinful desires. Well, then what we do is we say, okay, well, where do those sinful desires come from? And at this point we go, uh, I don't know. I guess they must come from my nature. And so if I have sometimes good desires, I do desire the things of the Lord, but sometimes bad desires, then I must have a nature that's sometimes giving me good things and sometimes giving me bad things. Therefore, I'm kind of dead to sin and kind of not. Partially righteous, partially not. And, and it makes perfect sense. Like this line of logic makes perfect sense. It's actually good logic. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not trying to, to, to say, oh, that's really, really dumb. No, 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 actually, this makes 100% sense. But here's the thing that we then do. We have to be careful, okay? So we can reason through this, and then what we do is we'll go to Galatians 5, or we'll go to Romans 8, and we'll read passages where Paul is talking about things like walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not your mind on the things of the flesh. Dot, 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 dot. And we say, oh, he must be talking about my nature. And we take a discussion there, which actually is not about your nature, which we're going to see in just a little bit, and we translate it into our nature based on an assumption that that's what it means to be a human being. <clears throat> Romans 6 is not wrong. You are dead to sin. Your nature is settled. 100% righteous. However, Romans 8 is not wrong either. There is that that we have to work through. And the way you bring them together is to realize the problem is that this picture is just too simple. That's actually the tension here. So let me, for example, pick one thing that does not come up. You can't process with this picture that hopefully all of us have experienced. And that is that. Has, has anyone ever successfully resisted temptation? I would hope all of you could raise your hand. I mean, I know in the U.S., you guys would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have. You know, and here you guys are a little more reserved, and that's good. But I'm an American, so give me a little something here, right? Okay? So we've, hopefully all of us, have had the experience of resisting sin. Well, wait a minute. How does that fit in this picture? It actually doesn't. 
There's no place that you can fit that in this picture. So what you realize is you have to say, oh, actually this picture is incomplete. Here's what's happening when you're resisting sin. Your desires are for something bad, something sinful, but your will intervenes. Your will steps in and says, I know you want that, but we're not going that way. I'm gonna redirect the actions away from the desires, right? That's what's happening when we're resisting sin. And every time we do that, we should be applauded. That's fantastic. <clears throat> the question then that Rin raises is this. If I'm saying we're 100% righteous, which is what I am saying, we are indeed dead to sin, a la Romans 6, but our desires aren't always 100% good, might it be possible that there's something interfering like that? Might it be possible that the issue is not that the core of who I am is still broken, but that there's something that's interfering with who I am and spinning my desires towards sin instead of towards righteousness, towards bad things instead of towards good? Well, I have good news for you. There's a scripture that describes exactly this situation, and we're going to read that. There's not too many of them that deal with 100% righteous people and, and so forth and so on. But let's look at Genesis 3 carefully. This is the temptation. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Sin has not entered the world. They haven't sinned. Sin has not entered their nature. Sin ha actions have not happened. None of that has happened at this point. They are full image bearers of God. <clears throat> I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of the passage just for time's sake. Let's start in verse 4, Genesis 3, verse 4. You know, they have the initial conversation. Are you supposed to do whatever you want? Well, not that tree, you know, back and forth. And it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Unfortunate that she forgot she already was. <clears throat> By the way, when Satan's tempting you, he's tempting you with something you already have and you're not well connected to. In Christ, we've been given everything for life and godliness. The temptation is never something you can't access in Jesus. It's something that you just haven't found out how to yet and to get it an alternate route. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rabbit traily today. Is that okay, guys? <laughs> okay, you guys are the best. I love you guys. Okay. <clears throat> you will not surely die, for God knows you'll, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now look at this next verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We have in this moment Eve, flawless human being, 100% righteous, never sinned, none of that is ever happening. And here she is staring at the tree, desiring it, craving it, wanting it, even though she's not even alive to sin. She's dead to it. She wants it. Why does she want it? Something shifted in her. What shifted? Her mindset, her perspective, her understanding of the world, her belief of what truth was. 
She was totally good not wanting that, that fruit. I mean, she was like, she was actually confused. She's like, actually, I'm not even supposed to touch it. So she's like nowhere near the tree. There's no, there's no desire thing happening. And then one conversation with the enemy sows a seed in her mind along a lie instead of along truth. And you know how that lie manifests? She looks at the tree and now she wants it. The journey in the Christian life is not a journey of like trying to kill the bad part of us. That happened 2,000 years ago. The bad part of you already died. You've been born again as a righteous new creation. The journey that we now have is the journey of allowing God to mature us in the new creation that we are, and that happens as he works to replace the lies that we've accumulated up here. In other words, it's a journey of growth into maturity, not a journey of resisting the bad part of you. The bad part of you has been settled. That's, that's not a thing anymore. That's been dealt with. The journey that we have now, incidentally, is actually seeing everything that's already happened. Believing that what we've been given, we've actually been given. And as we see it for what it actually is, you know what happens? Our nature and our mindset come into convergence. Rather than our nature being righteous, good things, things of the kingdom, desire, desire, desire. And then our mindset saying, but you need significance. You need value. The opinions of others matter. Rather than pointing in opposite directions, which gives us this confusing internal struggle in our desires, what happens is our mind begins to sync up with the direction of the kingdom. And now when your nature and your mindset are both rooted in truth, when you've been made new, your nature and your mind has been renewed, then you know what happens? Your desires are always for the good thing. And you get to live free. You get to do whatever you want. It's awesome. It's awesome. And over and over and over in the scriptures, the, 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 the way that Paul uh, encourages us, exhorts us to grow into maturity as believers is he says, guys, here's the thing, work on that mindset. Here's the thing, work on what's happening up here. He doesn't say flex your muscle harder and harder, get really good at willpower and resist all the bad stuff that you're always gonna wanna do for the rest of your life. He never says that. Now, if we find ourselves desiring sin, flex your willpower muscle, okay? Don't be dumb. <laughs> don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Resist sin if you find yourself wanting it. But what's far better than just dealing with willpower all the time is to allow the Lord to rewrite the scripts of your mind so you see the world the way he does and you're free the way he wants you to be. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Let me read a couple of scriptures here. I know... We can, yeah, we can take that off. Ephesians 4. Let's look at Ephesians 4, for example, real quick. Don't you guys love the Bible? Oh, Bible is the best. Mm, I love this book. For time's sake, let's start at verse 20. By the way, I love that I hear pages turning in the room. 
Love that. <clears throat> Paul, um, speaking to the Ephesians, he's encouraging them along the lines of their behavior. Okay? What Paul does in his letters, you'll see this theme over and over and over again. Essentially, about the first portion of the book is all about this is who you are. This is what has happened. You've died to sin. You've, you've been resurrected to God. This is what has happened. And then he turns a corner and he says, so this is how you ought to live. The reason he structures it that way is because morality ought to be framed as an issue of integrity to the new creation we've been made. In other words, the, it's, it, the, the concept is this, you've been made new, so now it's hypocritical to sin. What's, what's natural, what's normal for you now is righteousness. And so live that out because that was bought with a really high price. That's really significant. That was a big deal. So live into that and let that inner righteousness manifest now through your actions. Let that come out. And that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Da, 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 da. So he's making this turn and we're going to pick up in verse 20, Ephesians 4.20. He's saying that is not the way you learned Christ. All the bad things that uh, unbelievers do, Gentiles do, is what he's saying. Assuming, as you have heard about him, and you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Now, put off, that word, is the word for to take off a jacket. So what he's saying is this. He's not saying, you know, try and kill the little bit of old self that's still in there. What he's saying is, you're new on the inside, don't wear a coat of old actions on the outside. That's what he's saying. Put off the coat of old actions. Put off the coat of sinful behavior. It no longer matches you. It doesn't fit anymore. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And look at this, it's corrupt through deceitful desires. It's corrupt through desires based on deception, based on a broken mindset, based on not living in truth. That's how it's corrupted. So be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How you want to be transformed? Allow the Lord to renew the corrupted mindset. Be transformed in the spirit of your minds. Not something we summon up ourselves. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. And put on the new self. Put on that new self coat through that renewing of the mind. And what's going to be the result? Well, that new self is created after the likeness of God. Way back to Genesis 1 where we talked about yesterday in true righteousness and holiness. Our journey is a journey of allowing the Lord to renew our mind so that we can live in the freedom we've already been given. Really, really cool. And the way that happens is through cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Let me read uh, actually one of my favorite passages. This is 1 Corinthians 2. And this is one that... Um, for whatever reason, I don't know that we talk about a whole lot, but in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul starts digging real deep on some of the stuff that the Holy Spirit does in the Christian life. And here's what he says. I'm going to start in verse, uh, well, the second half of verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, the, the second sentence. It says this, 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's kind of a weird sentence. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of God? Where are you going, Paul? For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is the one who can root around in God and figure out the way that God's mind thinks. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I find that fascinating. Maybe you don't care, but I'm like, wow. Okay, so the Holy Spirit can think the way God thinks. He can perceive the thoughts of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, you've been given the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can figure out how God thinks. And you need to think the way God thinks to understand everything you've already got. So he gives us the spirit who can say, hey, here's what God thinks about this situation. Hey, here's how God sees this. Hey, here's how God's perceiving this. Because the Holy Spirit at any time, in any moment, in connection with us, who indwells us, lives inside of us, can come along and say, hey, here's truth in this area. Hey, here's how this works there. Hey, how's, here's how this works. Away. And as we ye- listen to him and yield to him, I might say, repent. Turn from an old mindset into a new mindset. As we listen and yield to him, he sows in our mindset the very thoughts of God. And as he sows into our mindset the very thoughts of God, that mindset is gradually renewed, and we have that beautiful, the beautiful synchrony of our mindset and our nature working together, and lo and behold, we start looking more and more like Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And so, if, so, so what that means is this, when it comes to the practicality of our lives, how do we live this Christian walk out? How do we live the identity that we've been given? Here's where the rubber meets the road on that. Are you synced with the Holy Spirit and what he's saying to you right now? Because if you are, you've got a wide open door for him to be renewing your mind. And all you gotta do is listen and follow him. Because he's going to turn your nature, or, or he's going to turn your thoughts to align with your nature. He's going to walk you along the right path. And so, because of all of that, walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. Set your mind on the things of the spirit, not the things of the flesh. Don't take your cues from this natural reality, which is fallen, which is broken, which has never trafficked in truth. Don't learn from that. Learn from the spirit, the spirit of truth, who's going to guide you into all truth. Because as that happens, he's going to renew your mind and you're going to live this amazing, glorious life. What does that look like? Well, I thought a beautiful example was what Jay talked us through last night. So guys, you know, sometimes if we're, we feel like we don't have enough, but you know what we have to do? We have to look to God and know that in God... He'll give us enough. That's a beautiful example right there. Don't turn, set your mind on the flesh. In the natural, doesn't look like I have enough. 
I'm not gifted enough, I'm not special enough, I don't have high enough quality leaders, I don't have enough resources, or whatever version it is. In the natural, absolutely true. But don't set your mind on the things of the natural. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. Turn, look to God, ask God, what is your truth? Oh, your truth, your favor is never gonna be taken from me. Your truth is it's about you, not me in the first place. Your truth is all things are possible to him or her who believes. And so tune into that truth. Set down the, I don't have enough, I'm inadequate. Which is really looking at ourselves without God, which is unbiblical and embrace the truth of who God says we are. Oh man, this is a wonderful life, guys. I wanna conclude with a visual here. Just, I'm gonna try and move this to the edge of the stage. I'm a bit nervous. By the way, I've already picked up your phrase like a bit, because you use that like all the time. We don't say that much in, in America, but I'm a bit this, I'm a bit that, and I'm like, ooh, I'm going home with that one. Okay. <clears throat> Make sure I'm clear on okay, good. As I said, I used to be a scientist, and so I love to do little experiments. And uh, we're going to do a bit of an experiment here. It is again, a bit, bit of an experiment <laughs> to kind of illustrate this whole thing. So a water bottle. You know, most of these little water bottles are, are made clear, right? You ever notice that? Like, you, don't, you never go to the store and see one that's just, like, totally red. They're all transparent. And that's intentional. That's purposeful. Why? Well, they want you to see the water inside. And they want you to feel thirsty, so you buy it, right? And so, in a sense, we might say something like, a water bottle allows you to see the image of water. This is kind of an image-bearing device, in a loose sense, we might say. So as we saw yesterday, we were created with an image-bearing capacity. We were created to bear the image of God himself. And so a long, long time ago in the garden, God creates humanity as an image-bearing device, and he breathes inside Adam and Eve, and he creates a capability for them to reveal something. They reveal God through their humanity. Maybe humanity is the water bottle pointing to who God is. This is what we were designed. This is what we were given the glorious capability to do. This is what it means to be human from God's point of view. But as we know, the sad story doesn't end there, right? Two chapters later, we have the fall and everything goes wrong. And in that, we have not only an imaging capability of God, but some sin gets mixed in there. And that beautiful ability to reveal who God is gets tainted, gets grossed. In fact, it's not just that, but it twists and distorts our own humanity. We become kind of a shadow of what we were. We become a sinner in the biblical terms. This is who we are when we're born. Yuck. <laughs> and you see, it's not just that the sin, of course, affects us, but it's that we're constantly manifesting the reality that's dwelling inside of us. 
And so, you know, there's a little bit of greed that spills out. There's a little bit of selfishness. There's a little bit of lust, a little bit of whatever version that happens. The sin dwelling inside is constantly manifesting itself through our life. And so we not only image sin, but we leak it everywhere. It's ugly. By the way, I, I think I successfully actually didn't fling food coloring onto your carpets. <laughs> but you get the point, right? This is a bad deal. But then, centuries thereafter, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. God takes up residence in humanity, Jesus Christ. And he comes and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The visible image of the invisible God. And like we leak our inner reality to the world around us, well, he does the same. Except he leaks healing, deliverance, salvation, and on and on and on. Manifesting the world within in the world around him. And so we see in him both who God is and who we were meant to be. But he not only reveals who God is, he not only manifests the kingdom, at the end of his life, he deals with us. And what he does, it's a fascinating little prayer. You should go read this. In John 17, these are like the literal words that Jesus prays right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Lord, would you take everyone who believes in me, not just these 12, but everyone who's going to believe as a result of their word, would you take all of them and put them in me right now? He prays that prayer, like literally that prayer. Go read it. What's happening? You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying this, Father, would you pour into me all of their brokenness? Let it come upon me, not on them, for this next stretch. He who knew no sin became sin. And you know what happens? The whole next stretch of the scriptures is fascinating. Because what, what Jesus is doing is he's step by step gradually entering into the full brokenness of humanity. Have you ever wondered why the whole thing starts at the Garden of Gethsemane? It's because it started at the Garden of Eden before that. First thing that happens is he gets betrayed by those who he's closest to. It's like Adam and Eve pointing fingers and betrayed one another. And tick by tick, he enters into rejection, brokenness, beating, mockery, abuse, and on and on and on. I would crumple it further, but that's the room that I have. You get the point. It looks pretty familiar. He's becoming who we were. He enters fully into our brokenness. And then you know what he does? He goes to a tree. You know why he goes to a tree? This whole thing started on a tree in the first place. And whereas Adam and Eve pulled fruit off the tree and pulled sin into the story of humanity, the father takes his son as sin and puts sin back up on the tree. 
he dies as the sinful, broken us. And in that, he opens the door to be made a new creation. By the way, I think it's not an accident that the same voice that said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, said it's finished. He dies. He's buried in the tomb. Three days pass. He resurrects. Ba-bum! <laughs> Full of new life. Yeah, I know. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> but then he does something fascinating. He comes to the disciples. I'm going to open this up. I need that open for some Panicked, hidden in the room. Resurrection Sunday night. He shows up. Ah! Peace be still. You know, that whole thing. <laughs> right? And then, well, I'd be scared too, right? And then he does something incredible. You know what he does? He says these most glorious, beautiful words. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You know what's remarkable about that? He was sent as the visible image of the invisible Father. Which means you and I are sent as the visible image of the invisible Christ. One might say his body. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he does something amazing. He breathes on them. <laughs> I worked on this. He breathes on them. Actually, I didn't get that quite well. There we go. Now, that was actually intentional because you know why he breathes on them? Because God breathed into Adam and Eve. It's a statement about recreation. It's a statement about you're being made new again. You're being recreated. And so he breathes into them and he restores the shape of their humanity. But it's not only that because he says, you know, I'm the incarnation. I'm God in a human being. You're now a restored human being, but you know what you need? You need some God. And so receive the Holy Spirit. And he pours himself into us. Amen, Debbie, right? Amen. <laughs> pours himself into us. And he sends us out. He says, guys, continue the mission. Guys, image God in this world. Guys, go bear fruit for the kingdom. Overtake the works of darkness because I've restored you to what it means to be a human being. Amen. Father, I thank you that you make all things new. And I thank you that you've made us the first fruits of the new creation. What a glorious reality we get to live in, God. Would you make that real in each and every one of our lives, God, day by day by day. Holy Spirit, we just give, we yield to you and we say train our minds in truth that we can live and flesh out Jesus to this world. In your name, amen. amen.